Martin Luther King said once, and it is very, very relevant to our situation today, none of us will be free until all of us will be free. So Palestinians are not free. And as long as we control their life, daily life of millions, so we will not be free as long as they will not be free. And if you ask me about why we didn't discuss it until today, my answer is very, very easy. It was too difficult. And the easiest way was to go out and to fight our enemies from outside. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. It is more and more likely that the 2024 election will consist of a rerun of a 2020 election, pitting Joe Biden against Donald Trump. And all I want to do with my little spiel today is to remind you that it is always a very dangerous mistake to assume that we know the outcome of an election. In 2016, everybody thought they knew, political scientists, the New York Times, NPR, that Donald Trump does not stand a chance, that Hillary Clinton's victory was basically assured. But that turned out to be wrong. In 2024, it is tempting to once again think that Donald Trump cannot possibly win. And it's true that he is deeply unpopular, but about 50% of Americans strongly disapprove of him, and another 15 or 16% somewhat disapprove of him. He is a very unpopular political figure. And yet, recent polls also make clear that Joe Biden is in a weak position. The latest poll by the Washington Post, one of the gold standard polls, has him at record low approval ratings, with only 36% of Americans approving of the way he's handling his job as president and 56% disapproving of it. In head-to-head polls, Biden is doing worryingly poorly. In 2020, he generally led Trump in head-to-head polls before the election, but that is not true today. Right now, 44% of Americans say that they'll definitely or probably vote for Trump. Only 38% say that they will definitely or probably vote for Biden. This is a warning sign. I'm exhausted at the thought of engaging one more time with Donald Trump. I'm exhausted beyond measure at the thought of another Trump presidency, but it is a prospect we cannot lively dismiss. It's also, though, another sign for Democrats to realize just how poorly they are doing in the estimation of most Americans. If the party is not able to build a broader consensus against a candidate as profoundly unpopular as Donald Trump, it desperately needs a theory as to why all of those people are being turned off by its policies and by its message. Taking the task seriously and acting on it may be what separates Donald Trump from a second stint in the White House. 
My guest today is Ami Ayalon. Ami was previously the commander of the Israeli Navy, as well as the head of Shin Bet, the country's secret service. He later became a member of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset for the Labour Party, and a peace activist. He writes about his experiences and his personal transformation in Friendly Fire, how Israel became its own worst enemy, and the hope for its future. Ami Ayalon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're somebody who has been engaged in thinking about Israeli democracy and Israeli politics for a very long time. Is the current moment one of special threat to Israel's democratic institutions and the country's future? Or is this just one of many crises in a country that's had its fair share of institutional upheavals and obviously security challenges as well? Well, I believe that it is the most dangerous threat that threatens our democracy and our identity as a Jewish democracy since the day Israel was created in 48. on one hand. On the other hand, it is not a surprise. It is a result of a process that started probably when Israel was created. And at least in my case, I started to think about it after 67. And I understood it after the assassination of our Prime Minister, Itzhak Rabin. Meaning, Israeli society is today a tribal society. We do not share common values. And whether you believe that there are three or five or four tribes, we speak the same language, but we do not share the common values. And we do not have what I believe in the academia we used to call the social covenant which enable us to agree on a constitution and later to live together with all of our differences, but without killing each other. We don't have it anymore. And this is why it is so dangerous. You talk about different tribes within Israel. What do you have in mind by these tribes? And how is it that a resolution to the Palestinian conflict could help those tribes understand each other better, could help those tribes come to a common understanding of what, you know, the kind of shared values are that can sustain an Israeli democracy in the long run? I don't think that Palestinian conflict will bring us closer. On the other hand, our different approach to the Palestinian people, in a way, uh, is part of our conflict. And I think that the major rifts within the Israeli society are between Jews and Arabs, Palestinian citizens of Israel. More than 20% of the Israelis are Palestinians, most of the Muslims. And, and the other rift is between secular and religious people, although it's a huge variety within each community, but this is the more religious you are, the tendency to vote for the right and the way you see Arabs in Israel and outside Israel, it shaped your identity. I think that between Jews in Israel, the major rift is the way we understand Judaism and the way we understand democracy. And this is something that we have to come up with. And I don't think that Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians can take a major part in this debate. And if you ask me politically, I think that the Israeli left or center to the left will have to understand that when you see the demographics of Israel, in order to be in power, 
politically, they will have to join forces with our Arab citizens. Because when it comes to the understanding of our concept of liberalism or democracy, which means that there's the role of the court, the power of the court, and our approach to the minorities and human rights, from the center to the left, we can agree with our Arab citizens on everything. I want to come back to what the origins of the crisis are and why you feel that Israeli society has become tribalized in this way. But first, can you just give a sort of summary for people who may not follow Israeli politics particularly closely, what the nature of this present threat is? The nature of the threat is the disappearance of our democracy. But I have to go back. You have to understand that the Israeli democracy was born as a very fragile, a very weak kind of democracy. We never had three branches. Government always, the parliament, by the coalition, you cannot pass the law that is not approved in the parliament, that is not approved in our government. As a side note, that seems to me a much broader phenomenon, which is sort of interesting and people are insufficiently aware of, which is that the theory of modern democracy mm-hmm. is the separation of power between three branches, right? Between the judiciary and the legislative and the executive. Now, in some countries like the United States, you do generally often have a division between the executive and the legislative, right? That is not true in most countries at all. In fact, mm-hmm. in purposes, that separation between these two branches is much weaker in modern democracy than sort of democratic theory suggests. And I think Israel yes. is one case of that. In addition to the fact that we don't have three branches, we don't have constitution. We never had. And I came to believe this is not by mistake. Government and the executive branch didn't really want to have a constitution. Later, we do not have what we call tradition or a, a culture of a democracy, like in Britain. So it's a very, very new and young democracy of people who, yes, feel a common denominator, which is a combination of religious and national identity, but we don't have a tradition of living together in a democracy. So the only limit to the power of the ruler of the executive branch was a court. And the legal reform today, the whole idea is to decrease, to take the power from the court and in a way to create authoritarian regime, which means that the government can do everything. So on the surface, the idea how judges are elected is a major issue. But as I said before, I think that our divisions and our the rifts between the tribes started much earlier. And this is why many people in the streets, you know, are demanding now constitution. I think that it's impossible to come up with a constitution now because you cannot impose constitution. The rifts are deeper and wider. And if we shall try, I believe that we shall face a violence from both sides. So it's very complicated. There is a lot of energy in the streets, and I see it as a very optimistic sign and a positive sign because for the first time, people understand that democracy was not given to us by God and it was not given to us as a present, and we have to fight for it. And we have to win this battle every day. And people are studying the basic concept of democracies in the street. Finally, they understand that we have the right, we have the ability, and in time of crisis like today, 
We have the duty to take to the streets. Otherwise, we shall lose it. I'm going to be the advocate for people who know less about Israeli politics here. So I'm going to push you to explain more of what's going on, if that's okay. The role of Supreme Courts in the preservation of a democracy is complicated, right? I have defended in my work the need for strong forms of judicial review when it comes to the basics of democratic institutions. The most important thing is that when an executive is overstepping the boundaries of their rightful authority, you need to have some kind of other power from the state to be able to say, hey, that is not actually what the basic rules of our society, whether it's a constitution or a basic law, are allowing the president or the prime minister, as the case may be, to do. I also worry, and I've written in The People versus Democracy, that the sort of authority to do that and legitimacy to do that is often undermined when courts start to become quasi-policymakers. So explain to us in this early mm -hmm. context, what is that to the complaints from the right that the Israeli Supreme Court had grown hugely in yeah. the realm of the kind of decisions that it was saying. Yeah. Is, is there something to that complaint? And does uh, Netanyahu's reform just try to rein that in? Or in what ways does it go beyond that in a form? I'm sympathetic to your point here, but explain to us yeah. how does it go beyond that in a way that really starts to threaten these democratic institutions? Even in your question, you mentioned twice the power of the court versus the legislative branch. There is no legislative branch in Israel. I said it before, because the government control the parliament. You cannot pass any law that is not approved in our government. So forget about parliament in Israel. In fact, there is no legislative branch in Israel. And I said it before, you said, okay, it's in, in many other democracies. I know nothing about other democracies. Israel is a very unique case, again, because we don't have a constitution. And in addition, and this is something very unique, we did not separate religion from politics or religion from national root. So what we see today, or I can go back to the court, the court found itself dealing with questions or with dilemmas. For example, when we say Israel is a Jewish democracy. Okay, and this is, I think, agreed by most people. What do we mean when we say Jewish democracy? What is our Judaism? What is our democracy? I do not accept the racist concept of Judaism that is brought to us by Rabbi Kahana and by Smotrich and by Benkir. You know, by the way, he was accused of being a supporter of a terrorist organization. He was one of the people who led the people that tried to assassinate our Prime Minister Sakrabin, and today he's a minister. And his concept of Judaism is a racist concept of supremacy, which is totally unaccepted, not by me and not by, I believe, 90% of the people who are living in Israel. So again, I have to be an advocate for people who are not deep in the Israeli discourse. So what's his conception of Judaism very, and what's very, racist about very, it? very simple. Okay, one sentence. Jews are better and they deserve more rights more civil rights, than any other citizen of Israel who is not a Jew. They summarize almost everything. So, I mean, I think this goes to the heart of something that critics of Israel would push, right? And I know that you're obviously somebody right. who is both a defender of the state of Israel, somebody who's had great military responsibilities in defending Israel, but is right. also very critical of some aspects of contemporary Israel. What does it look like to have a Jewish democracy 
that refutes that point, which is to say, you know, how is it possible to have a state that is defined in important ways by being Jewish while giving equal rights to non-Jewish citizens of a state? Is that a balancing act that is possible? It's a great question. And this is why when you asked me to start with current situation in Israel, I told you, okay, it's great, but we shall have to go back at least to 1948 and probably even to the beginning of the Zionist concept. Let's do it. Let's go back to 1948. Uh, okay, let, let's try. Okay, I, I'm not a historian, I'm not a philosopher, but okay, once we ask the question, we have to try to get the answer. And I start by asking, when we say a democratic Jewish Israel, what do we understand as a character of our Judaism and what is the nature of our democracy? Now, it's very, very complicated because if we ask this question, we have to try to come up with an idea of a Judaism. You know, Judaism was, during 2000 years, a very, very pluralistic concept. And it was okay, because Jews were, you know, lived all over the world, and they lived in a community, and each community, in a way, created or designed its own concept of Judaism. Once we created a state, and we did not separate religion from the state, and from its politics, we have to ask this question. And it is amazing because, you know, the founders of the Zionist movement, they discussed it. They wrote books about it. All of them. You know, if you read the books of Herzl, Jabotinsky, Begin, Berkatz Nelson, David Ben-Gurion, all of them. They discussed, they jumped into the future and they envisioned the state of Israel years before it became a real state, and they gave answers. But this debate or this public discussion stopped from the moment that we created the state of Israel. And we were very occupied, defending ourselves, fighting against all the enemies around us. Today, we understand that our major threat, more than Iran, more than Hezbollah, more than Hamas, more than Islamic Jihad, is the divisions, the rifts between the Israeli tribes. And this is why when we ask this question, we have to give a specific answer. If you ask me, I believe that if we shall deepen up to the roots of our tradition into the Bible, we will be able to find the concepts, the values that in a way created years later the concept of democracy. I'll give you an example. The fact that all humans are equal it's a Jewish concept. Go back to the Bible. The concept that all humans were created by God, this is the beginning of the Torah. And it means that all humans are equal. So you can find all these ideas, all these values, if you go deep enough. And the idea is to come to a place in our definition to the identity of Israel will be the more Jewish Israel is, the more democratic it is. Democracy does not contradict Judaism. Only if we can choose the right Judaism and the right concept of democracy. So how has your answer to that question evolved over time? Are the values of Israeli founding the right ones that have been corrupted over time? Or was there in part also a problem at the founding and that's being expressed now? And how has the experience of conflict with the Palestinians informed the evolution of your thinking on this? 
Martin Luther King said once, and it is very, very relevant to our situation today, none of us will be free until all of us will be free. So uh, Palestinians are not free. And as long as we control the life, daily life of millions, so we will not be free as long as they will not be free. And if you ask me about why we didn't discuss it until today, my answer is very, very easy. It was too difficult. And the easiest way was to go out and to fight our enemies from outside. So how did your view on this evolve? I mean, you started your life off as a soldier. You were one of the more decorated soldiers in Israeli history. You clearly had a security lens through this. You know, in its early years, the state of Israel was very embattled. When did you start to think or start to realize that the main threat to Israelis' security and prosperity is not military, but that it comes from these challenges? I am ashamed to say that it took me many years. I was born in the Jordan Valley and, uh, you know, Syrians were up above on the Golan Heights and, and the Zionist concept of my parents. I never asked them about it, but I believe that it was based on a very, very basic ideas of settlement and security. They came from Europe with the idea that the Jewish people is facing a major threat. It was before the Holocaust. And when they came to Israel, my mother came as a child, my father, illegal immigrant during the British mandate, during the 30s. And the idea was to create a state for the Jewish people. In order to save the Jewish people, this was the Zionist concept. The only idea that can save us from anti-Semitism, pogroms, violence, and later, later, the Shoah, the Holocaust, was to create our own state and to defend ourselves. And the future state of Israel will be wherever we can build a settlement, work the land and defend ourselves. So they did it in the Jordan Valley. They pushed the border to the east as much as possible. And this is why every time when they went towards the land, Syrians shelled our settlements and we spent many hours or many days in shelters. But it was okay. This was a price that we had to pay. And this was a concept that brought me to a volunteer to the, to the Navy, to the Naval Commando. And the idea was to do it for four years and to go to come back to the kibbutz. But after four years, we had a six-day war and we found ourselves in a war of attrition. And it was the first time that I remember that I felt like my father, that the whole security of the state is on our very, very narrow shoulders. So I stayed in the Navy, in the security, and my friends from my kibbutz, they went to build settlements in the Jordan Valley, in Sinai, in the Golan Heights. It was not an idea of the far right. In Israel, it was the labor movement. This was a concept. And it took me 20 years, you know, after 67, we felt like liberators. This land is ours. We learned it. We, we suck it during our childhood. I did not follow religion in the kibbutz. It was a very secular concept, a very, very secular way of life. But the stories of the Bible were the stories of my childhood. So we felt like liberators. And it took me 20 years to understand that, yes, we liberated places and probably that were given to us by God. But we became a very, very violent oppressor, occupier of millions of Palestinians who hate us because we deprive them from their rights and we deprive them from their identity. They, especially after the 60s, they saw themselves as a people and they fought since then and they are fighting today in order to create a state alongside Israel. A Palestinian state, and they are using their right 
as a nation to create a state. So you mentioned the fundamental. He died several days ago, and he was the person whom I met in my book. And he told me that he understood what will be the consequences of the occupation. But he understood it immediately in 67. I understood it only 20 years later, during the first intifada. And only during the first intifada, I was a deputy commander of the Israeli Navy, and I found myself only with my driver facing violence of youngsters. And I saw the eyes of a young Palestinian from, I don't know, it was three, four meters. He had not a stone, only a rock in his hands. And you could see that all what he wants is to kill me. And he was not armed, so I couldn't shoot him, but I understood. And later, and if you ask me today, I believe that the way I understand today myself, Israeli society, and even the way I understand the Middle East reality is a result of my years in the Shin Bet. I became the director of the Shin Bet after the assassination of Rabin, and I did it for almost four and a half years. And this was a big change because probably I didn't see it immediately, but in retrospect, I found out when I came to the Shin Bet that it is a totally different type of war. During all my years in the Navy, I'm not proud of it, but I killed many people, probably too many in Egypt, in Syria, in Lebanon, everywhere. And something that later became very strange to me, I never knew anything about them. I never knew the people whom I killed, and I didn't care. I didn't need it in order to kill them. We sent soldiers and warriors to kill, not to negotiate. And once you become a member of the Shin Bet, or a security, or security, and you are fighting terror, you have to know everything on every terror activist. You have to know his four names because, by the way, it will give you something about his background, history, family, and you have to know with whom he pray, who are his neighbors, with whom he pray in the mosque, his children, grandchildren, family, wife. Otherwise, you will not understand. You will not be able to interrogate him. You will not be able to recruit him and you will not be able to understand the origin of his hatred, which is the origin of his violence. And if you will not understand, you will not be able to win this war. So suddenly it is a totally different kind of war in order to fight and in order to win. You don't have to agree with him. Sometimes you know that the moment that he will be released from jail, he will go on killing your friends and your Israeli citizens. But you understand his motives. And suddenly you understand that he is not a military target. He is not somebody that you have to kill. He is somebody that you have to understand. And yes, we have to face them. But unless we understand them, we will not be able to win. And the second lesson that I learned, again in the Shin Bet, it was the first time when I understood that the Israeli-Palestinian equation is very simple. We Israelis, we shall have security when they, Palestinians, will have hope. And when I say it to my friends in Israel, they ask me, are you, are you crazy? We just have to use more violence. I said, no. The more violence we shall use, less effective we will be. We cannot deter a person or a group of people when they feel that they have nothing to lose. If you ask me 
this is the reality of the 21st century. We should see violence everywhere because all the democracies are changing and the world is changing and all the democracies are facing problems. And but in the Israeli case, we shall have to come up to agreement with the Palestinians. And I believe, by the way, although it is a dream today, and nobody in Israel is ready to talk about it, but finally, probably it will not be in my lifetime, but finally we shall live side by side because there is no other option. What would a solution look like? Is that a two-state solution? Is that a different kind of solution? What in concrete terms would it mean to achieve that peace? First of all, it will be only after violence, after a crisis. I saw it after the Yom Kippur War. We signed peace agreement with Egypt. After the first intifada, we came to Madrid and then to Oslo to negotiate with the Palestinians, although it didn't work. After the second intifada, we pulled out of Gaza. So only in time of chaos and violence, we understand that there is no other option. We have only two options. One is democracy from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, in which Jews will not be majority, and it is not acceptable, not by the Israelis, not by the Palestinians, if we shall have just one democracy from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, it will not be a Jewish democracy, and it will not be a Palestinian democracy. It will not be a democracy. Because it will be something similar to what we saw in Syria and what we see today in Lebanon and what we see almost all over the Middle East. You know, Muslims are killing each other for the right Islam. And in Lebanon, Christians, Druze, Muslims, etc. So we understand that in the Middle East it will not work. And this is why the only option left for us is states. And by the way, the parameters are very clear. Parameters were almost agreed on the political level, but people did not accept it because we did not think that this is a price that we have to, or minorities in Israel, the religious minority. By the way, the assassination of our prime minister was exactly on this issue, on the idea of a group, minority of radical Jews who are ready to kill just in order not to give a piece of our land to somebody else. So parameters will be, in a way, agreed upon two states for two people, Palestinian state, a Jewish state, the borders will be based on 67, with swap of territories, based on security, demography, and contiguity, the right of return for the Palestinians and for Jews. You know, for example, Palestinians shall return only to the state of Palestine and Jews shall return only to the state of Israel. And when it comes to refugees, Palestinian refugees, they will be compensated and they will have to choose whether to go back to Palestine or to third countries or to become citizens in the places that they live now. The international community will have to guarantee to secure their borders and security, holy places, and in Jerusalem, Arab neighborhoods under Palestinian authority, Jewish neighborhoods under Israeli sovereignty and security. Palestine will have 
a very powerful police forces. And by the way, this was the only, the, the most sensitive issue in Jerusalem. And again, as I said before, Jewish neighborhoods, Arab neighborhoods, but holy places, no sovereignty. This is the only place in which, in a way, we created something new is authority in the holy places belongs to God. But Wailing Wall and all this, the area around it will be secured and controlled by the state of Israel for the Jewish people. Haram sharif will be, like the status quo, will be controlled by Islam and, and the Holy Church in Jerusalem will be controlled by the Christian sects. Again, I don't think that, pro- I, 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 I don't think that I, I will see it in my lifetime, but if you ask me, this will be the future. One argument that's often made, especially on the left, is that because of the extent of settlements now in Palestinian territory and so on, and perhaps because of the length of the conflict, it's too late for the two-state solution. That somehow the time when it has passed so that it has become either practically impossible or somehow morally wrong. I understand you're, you're broadly in sympathy or you criticize uh-huh. the government for some of the same reasons. Why do you think that they're drawing the wrong conclusion when they say that it's time to give up on the two-state solution? It's because in history, there is no too late and there is no irreversible situation. It's nonsense. Sometimes, yes, uh, we see a revolution. And, you know, uh, if you go back many, many years ago, uh, Jews used to say that the road to redemption, so there are ups and downs. And uh, when somebody tells me, okay, it's too late, I said, okay, today it's too late. But when we shall face violence and when we shall understand the price that we are paying, I believe that we shall prefer security and life on history. We shall create flexibility. I met a rabbi, and he is living in the territory. He's a settler. And I told him, look, rabbi, I want to ask you, it was after the assassination of the prime minister, what will you do if the government of Israel will decide with the parliament, etc., etc., that we are giving back some places in Israel in order to see Israel as a Jewish democracy. This is our only chance to see Israel as a Jewish democracy. It means that you will have to come to your people, to your community, and to tell them, look, we have to take our furniture, our children, our grandchildren, our Torah Bible with us and to go back to the state of Israel or to another place in the land of Israel and this is the price that we have to, to pay. And he said, Ami, it's not a religious or theological problem. You know, I can use the Bible in order to explain it. The land of Israel does not belong to us. The land of Israel belongs to God. Sometimes he gives it to us. Sometimes he doesn't. He don't know exactly what are his reasons. For a thousand years, it was not ours. So we can live with the idea that this is ours, but okay, it is kept by God for another time. And when the Messiah will come, it will be ours. I'm not a rabbi, and I don't know how many of his followers will accept this answer. What I'm telling is I believe that when time will come, and unfortunately, and this is, you know, the sad aspect of my optimism, that the time will come only when we shall face violence and we shall understand the price that we have to pay in order not to choose right.
and not to choose to prefer for the time being to prefer to see Israel as a Jewish democracy, even if we have to give some land of Israel in order to see it happening. Ami Ayalon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.